Let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, and we'll be beginning in verse 1 and continuing on through chapter 34, verse 9. Well, let's give careful attention now to God's holy Word, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now therefore, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the Tabernacle of Meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp But his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore, I pray, If I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken. 
for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he said, Please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you, and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help this evening, let's look at Exodus chapter 33 and verse 19. First of all, looking back here at the passage we read, Exodus 13, excuse me, 33, verse 19 where the Lord says to Moses in this situation that comes immediately after the golden calf incident, that uh, really it's providential, but from my own standpoint, coincidental that we're considering this after we've just recently uh, considered the golden calf incident. But, But this is right after the golden calf incident when the Lord judges His people for making an idol and Moses is interceding so that God would, as we heard in the psalm meditation, forgive His people and maintain 
his relationship with them and preserve them into the future to inherit the land of Canaan. So all of this is taking place. And we read in verse 19 as Moses is interceding and asking in prayer for the Lord to go with them into the promised land and to remain with them as his people. Moses asks that the Lord would show him the Lord's glory. And here's how the Lord responds in verse 19. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. So Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I'll show you all of my goodness. And I'm going to show you all of my goodness by proclaiming to you my name and revealing to you who I am by way of this name. This is one of the most powerful and beautiful passages in all the Bible when we think of seeing and knowing the glory of God. This ought to be the prayer of every Christian. Lord, show me, please show me Your glory. This is the mindset we ought to have every time we come to the presence of God in public worship, in private devotions, in family worship, in any context whatsoever where the Word of God is involved, we ought to be praying that through God's Word, through His sacraments, through His ordinances, that we would see His glory. And it's important here, the way in which God reveals His glory, the way in which He reveals His essence, the way in which He reveals who He is. He speaks of it as, all my goodness, and He reveals it in His name. All of God's goodness. What is God's goodness? It's important for us this evening if we're to understand the glory of God that was proclaimed to Moses in the cleft of the rock. It's important for us to understand what God's goodness is. When we speak about God as being good, too often in our society, words lose their meaning. And so, good might simply mean that something tastes good. You know, oh, the pizza was good. Or the pizza was great. And so we take these words and we sort of dumb them down to to a very base level and we miss the significance of what it means to be good. Not just something that's palatable and enjoyable, but God's goodness or even God's greatness. What do these things mean? Well, God's goodness is His most wise, holy, all-sufficient, all-encompassing benevolence or goodwill whereby as the sole inexhaustible fountain of all that is excellent, beautiful, praiseworthy, and beneficial, He freely, generously, and continuously supplies His creatures with countless undeserved benefits, the greatest of which is everlasting communion with Himself, the perfect, ever-blessed, altogether lovely, and all-satisfying Creator, and Redeemer. Let me read that again. God's goodness is His most wise, holy, all-sufficient, all-encompassing benevolence. So this is something in God. It's an attribute of God. This is His goodwill. His intention to do good to His creatures. Whereby as the sole inexhaustible fountain of all that is excellent. So God 
is the ultimate and sole exclusive source of all that is good. And when we say good, we mean all that is excellent, beautiful, praiseworthy, and beneficial in this world. And it is through this benevolence that He freely, generously, and continuously supplies His creatures with countless undeserved benefits. And of course, the greatest benefit of all is the benefit that He gives in particular to His covenant people through faith in Christ. That great benefit, that ultimate goodness, that ultimate excellence and beauty and praiseworthiness, and that ultimate benefit of communion with Himself, the perfect, ever-blessed, God is ever blessed in Himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is good and God rejoices to enjoy His own infinite goodness within the triune nature of God Himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's ever blessed in Himself. He's perfect. But toward us, He is altogether lovely. He is all satisfying, not only as the Creator, but as the Redeemer. And so when God says, I'm going to reveal my nature, I'm going to reveal my name, I'm going to reveal my glory, understand God says that all that I am is part of my goodness. There's nothing that God is that is not good. Goodness pervades every attribute of God such that He can say of His glory, of His nature, of His name, that it is described in this way, it is all my Goodness. God's goodness is essential to His character, as essential as His glory or His name. And it's important when we think of the attributes of God, God is not like a pie that you can cut into different pieces. And there's a piece of God, His justice, His mercy, His power, His wisdom. But God is His character. He is His attributes. God is love. God is goodness. God is power. God is wisdom. God is righteousness. These are just different terms, different aspects that we as finite creatures use to try and describe who and what God is. Uh, But God is one. He's not a collection of parts. Theologians speak of His simplicity. And I think that's really at the heart of what God is saying here. That all that He is, is goodness. Every attribute of God can, can in a sense be a footnote to His goodness. It's, it's all His goodness. It's who He is. It's what He is. And in chapter 34, you can see the Lord passes by or passes before Moses and proclaims, verse 6, the Lord, the Lord God. Now we could study the name Jehovah, the Lord or Elohim, God, and we could look at those. We're not going to look at those tonight. But God declares His name, the Lord, the Lord God. And then He describes all His goodness. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, and so on. We'll look at each of these. But, but notice God's goodness in His mercy. What is God's mercy? It's giving His creatures less judgment than they deserve. God is merciful towards sinful creatures by giving them less judgment 
than they deserve. To any extent that God gives anybody less judgment than they deserve at any given time, that is merciful. It also speaks of God's grace, that He is gracious, and that speaks of God giving more blessing than the creature deserves. When God gives less judgment than the sinner deserves, that's mercy. When God gives more blessing than the creature deserves, even a sinless creature, but He bestows upon them gifts and benefits that they don't deserve, that is grace. And you can see God's goodness in each of these things. It also speaks of His long-suffering. We heard in the psalm meditation, God is patient. He's slow to anger. And His long-suffering is when He gives the sinful creature more time than they deserve. As sinners, in our father Adam, we as human beings deserve to be sent to hell instantaneously. But God is long-suffering. And His long-suffering is our salvation, Peter says in one of his epistles, that it's God being long-suffering that then sets the, it sets the stage. It, it allows for God's mercy and grace to go forth and convert sinners. It's God's patience and long-suffering that facilitates the work of the Gospel in this world. When He gives sinners, even sinners who go to hell, the fact that they had more time to repent than they deserved. Romans 9 says God is even long-suffering toward the vessels of wrath doomed to destruction. So you can see when He gives less judgment than a sinner deserves, when He gives more blessing than a creature deserves, when He gives more time to repent than a sinner deserves, that He is manifesting His goodness. I think at face value that makes sense. So far, so good. But then it continues to speak of God's as we might say, His abounding goodness. These preliminary categories are more general. You can think of ways in which, although theologians quibble about whether we can speak of mercy and grace more broadly than God's elect, but I think in the definitions we've given here, you can speak of God giving less judgment across the board than sinners deserve, so on and so forth. But now we begin to narrow the focus with God's abounding goodness toward His covenant people. And that focus, that transition is signaled by perhaps one of the most important words in the Old Testament, Hebrew, chesed, chesed. And that's the word merciful, or or, excuse me, that's the word goodness. It's often translated mercy, but abounding in goodness. That word goodness is not the same word goodness that's referred to in chapter 33, verse 19. All my goodness. This is not, it's, honestly, it's not the best translation here. God's chesed is His covenant love. This word, we, we've meditated on it in past sermons. It means God's steadfast covenant love. His tender mercy for His people. His chesed. It's His goodness but it's His covenant goodness, His covenant love, His covenant mercy for Israel. That's, that's the most frequent usage of it, not exclusively. But certainly when it says that God is abounding in goodness, it's speaking of that faithful covenant love. And then it adds the word truth. Truth meaning faithfulness. So God, across the board, you can see His mercy, His grace, His long-suffering toward 
the vessels of wrath, yes, but He is abounding in His steadfast covenant love and faithfulness, truth, faithfulness toward His people. And you can see the covenant language as this momentum builds. Verse 7, keeping mercy, keeping chesed. In other words, goodness, truth, and keeping mercy, all these things go together. This is covenantal language. God's faithful, abiding, steadfast covenant love that He keeps unto thousands. In other words, unto thousands of generations. Psalm 105 talks about this, even in the reason that's added to the second commandment uh, in the Ten Commandments. talks about God's faithfulness and His mercy, His chesed, to thousands keeping covenant with thousands of generations of His people. So here's God's covenant love by which He saves His people. He redeems them from the guilt and power of sin. He adopts them as His children. He sanctifies them by His Holy Spirit, which is ultimately perfected in the life to come in their glorification. This is our covenant God in His covenant goodness to His people. He says, I'm going to show you all my goodness, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy unto thousands. And he goes on to say that in terms of that mercy, that covenant love, that he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Now the word to forgive means to bear up, to bear the load, not to just sweep something under the rug. That is not what this word means. This word is used throughout the Old Testament, even in reference to Christ bearing the sins of His people in Isaiah chapter 53. This word means that God towards His people is faithful. He keeps and maintains mercy for them and He takes up their sin like the scapegoat in the Old Testament. That sacrifice where they would would take two goats and the one they would impute the sins of the people to the goat And it would bear the sins outside the camp into the wilderness. And the other they would sacrifice as a picture of Christ's atonement. And both of these things, both of these goats pictured Christ as the bearer of His people's sin. So God as a covenant God in His goodness takes the load off of our shoulders, takes the burden off of our backs, and He in the person of His Son bears it. And the Father lays on Him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53. And He bears our sorrows and the infinite punishment that our sins deserved. So understand, when you see the word forgive, it doesn't just mean to let something slide or to cover something and and let it go. It means to take that sin burden upon Himself. He is forgiving and He forgives all sins. He forgives all different degrees of sinfulness. He forgives iniquity, premeditated, cold-blooded, strategic sin, utter wickedness and perversion of the worst kind. He forgives transgression, where perhaps it's not cold-blooded and premeditated, but it's a clear violation. The moment you were committing the sin, you knew it was sinful, Uh, It wasn't accidental. It wasn't just, as they say, missing the mark. But in the heat of passion, you did what you knew was wrong. He forgives iniquity. He forgives transgression. He forgives sin, which means simply missing the mark. In any way, failing to conform to the perfect standard of God's law. 
So all these varying acts of disobedience, sins of omission, sins of commission, hidden sins, sins that you're aware of, presumptuous sins, all of these kinds of sins. The blood of Christ cleanses God's people from all sin. If you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's God's goodness. And again, it makes sense because we feel the goodness. We heard the sermon this morning. Perhaps we're feeling overwhelmed with a burden of guilt and we hear these words of eternal life, this good news of the Gospel that God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. And and that is good. We can see God's goodness. We can see His most wise, holy, all-sufficient, all-encompassing benevolence. We can see Him as the exclusive, inexhaustible fountain of all that is excellent. What could be more excellent than the forgiveness of sins, the steadfast covenant love of God? What could be more beautiful, praiseworthy, beneficial? We understand all His goodness up to this point in the passage. But then things take a turn in a different direction. And perhaps it throws us off if we're paying close attention. Because we're told in verse 7 that not only all His goodness includes keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving our sins, but then it says that part of His goodness is that He by no means clears the guilty. Now you'll notice if you're using the New King James or the King James, the words the guilty are italicized. That's not to emphasize those words. That's to indicate that they were added by the translators so that the passage would make a little more sense. So it would be easier to understand. And the word clearing here is elsewhere translated in such a way as to mean to leave something unpunished. You think of the Proverbs where it says, though hand join in hand, the wicked shall not go unpunished. Even if everybody in the world joins together for Pride Month, doesn't matter. This is not a, a, a democracy. Um, the wicked will not go unpunished. That's the word. To go unpunished is to be cleared God will not leave the guilty unpunished. God will by no means clear the guilty. Instead, He will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, first of all, just as an aside, we need to make sure we understand why these two things are not incompatible. You might read this and say, well, I thought God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but here it's saying in the very next phrase, that he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished and he visits their iniquities and he judges them. How does that work? Well, that's the importance of understanding the meaning of that word forgiveness. In justifying sinners and forgiving them of their sins, God is not simply giving them a free pass. He is taking their sin and placing it on His Son at the cross And Christ is bearing up those iniquities and paying the just penalty in satisfaction of the law of God which He perfectly obeyed and all of His obedience and suffering is credited to the account of the believer such that when you confess your sins, He is not just merciful to forgive, but He is faithful and just 
Reverently speaking, He has to forgive your sins because He has promised according to His covenant and Christ has purchased that covenantal blessing of forgiveness and justification for you. Now again, it's not Jesus twisting the Father's arm. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, after all. But He by no means clears the guilty. So in other words, either the sinner's judgment takes place through the substitution of the cross, either Jesus satisfies the law, in which case God is not leaving sin unpunished, or that sinner himself or herself endures the wrath of God for eternity in hell, in which case as well, the sinner is not going unpunished. So God by no means leaves sin or sinners unpunished. They're either punished in their mediatorial substitute at the cross or they're punished in themselves for all eternity in hell. So there's no contradiction there. But still, how is God's just visitation of judgment on the wicked part of His goodness? Because that's exactly what God is saying. God's saying, I'm going to show you my glory, my name. I'm going to show you all my goodness. And my goodness doesn't stop midway through verse 6. My goodness continues the whole way through to the end of verse 7. My goodness includes my just judgments against sin and against sinners. And if you have opportunity to sing through the Psalms from time to time, as, as uh, most of us do, you know that this is a theme throughout the Psalter. The connection between God's goodness and mercy and God's justice and righteousness. That in fact, God's goodness includes His just, just judgments. Psalm 33 verse 5, He loves righteousness and justice The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. See, those two things that we separate, we say, oh, well, His goodness and His justice. These two things like oil and water, not biblically speaking. These two things go together. His justice is part of His goodness. Psalm 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. So God's people are able to see His throne is founded upon justice and yet His mercy and truth go forth from the throne and His people rejoice in all His goodness, not just part of His goodness. Psalm 145, verse 7. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. Righteousness being interchangeable there with justice. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness, of your justice. Verse 8, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all. And His tender mercies are over all His works. We've seen that in our definition. Then if you continue on, verse 17 of this same psalm, the Lord is righteous 
in all His ways, gracious in all His works. So God's justice, even His just judgments against sinners, are part of His goodness, part of His excellence, part of His beauty, part of His communication of His goodness to His creatures. His justice is a good thing. Do we embrace all of His goodness? Or do we pick and choose? Do we have a buffet style of our, our theology where we go through and we pick and choose which, which attributes of God that we rejoice in and which that we're just, you know, keeping at arm's length? You know, as if God's justice is the broccoli and God's mercy is the uh, cheesy mashed potatoes. And well, if we can mix them together, then the broccoli tastes good. But the Bible tells us that the Lord loves justice, that the Lord is justice, that it's part of His goodness. Do you love justice? Do you love God? If you love God, you'll love His justice and you'll view it as a good thing. Now let's consider a number of the aspects of God's justice that are in fact good. And let's think about how they're good and why these aspects of His justice, these manifestations of God's justice are good. First, God's eternal justice is good. It's good. It's beautiful. It's beneficial. It's praiseworthy. It's excellent. What would the world be without it? What would God's eternal plan or His plan for human history be without justice? If you look at the last chapter, or sorry, uh, uh, one of the last chapters in the Bible, Revelation chapter 20, we considered this not too long ago, the final judgment, the great white throne. And in Revelation 20 verse 10, we're told that the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Is that a good thing? Is it a good thing that Satan would be cast into hell? That Satan, who prowls around like a roaring lion, devouring people, bringing them further and further away from God, blinding the minds of unbelievers, is it good that Satan, who originally came into the Garden of Eden and sowed these seeds of temptation and reaped this harvest of wickedness and misery throughout the ages, is it a good thing that Satan would be cast into hell forever. Yes, it is a good thing. Uh, we don't want Satan roaming around the new heaven and the new earth. Okay? It's a good thing. I hope we would all at face value, even intuitively, even if you're not a believer tonight, I think you can see this. It's a good thing that Satan and the demons would be cast into eternal hellfire. But, verse 13 of that same chapter, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So the soul who sins shall die. We think it's a good thing when fallen angels are cast out of God's comforting presence for all eternity. Is it a good thing that human sinners are cast into the lake of fire? 
Ah, it's not as, not as easy to answer that, is it? Why? Because we have a conflict of interest. That's why. We think it's perfectly good and beneficial, and we're happy to be in heaven where Satan is across that gulf that no one can bridge the divide. We're happy to have Satan in hell forever so that we can enjoy perfect blessedness and holiness and happiness and not be tempted and not have to be vigilant against this roaring lion. That makes sense. But when we think about ourselves and the hell that we deserve, are we willing to say equally that if God had cast every single sinful human in Adam into hell, just as He did with all the demons, not saving a single one of them, would that have been a good thing? And perhaps the only way to get an honest answer would be to ask an angel. Would that be a good thing? I think the angels would say, yes, it would. And I think if the angels were to comment, though certainly they're, they're infinitely pleased with, with the plan of redemption, if given the options of letting humanity continue, sinners growing like weeds throughout the earth, corrupting and polluting and perverting the world that God made to be perfect and sinless, if given the choice between letting us continue in our sin and forever sequestering us and casting us, quarantining us in hell away from the comforting presence of God among His sinless creatures, I think it would be a no-brainer. I think the angels would rejoice at the justice of God in damning all of us to hell, even as we rejoice when God finally shuts the door on Satan and the demons. And we have not come to grips with the beauty and glory of God's grace until we've come to grips with that. That if God had sent us all to hell, the angels would be giving a round of applause and rightly so, because that would be good. That would be good. If you and I are corrupting the world, and God rids the world of our corruption, that is a good thing. And, and we have to come to grips with it. It's part of His goodness that He visits iniquity. And His eternal justice, we've got to get that one out of the way right off the bat. God's eternal justice is good. Romans 7.12 says that God's law, which demands that sinners be punished, is not just holy and not just righteous, but it is good. It's good. The law that demands the punishment of sinners is good. And Ecclesiastes tells us that one sinner can create a whole mess of evil. One fly in the ointment. One sinner. If, if God cleared one guilty sinner and allowed them to continue in their sin without either redeeming them through the justice of the cross or damning them through the justice of hell, my friends, that would create much harm and much evil. And even in the world today, God's long-suffering, when we, when we look at God's patience and we see in the world so much that is evil, so much that is unjust, Solomon reflected upon this in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun, and look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. Therefore I praise the dead who were already dead, more than the living who are still alive. 
Now, in this world where God has redeemed a people and He has set them apart from the world and they become beset on every side by opposition from the world, it's a world filled with unrighteousness and injustice against God's people and really even more broadly than that. There is oppression and injustice throughout this world. I don't need to tell you that. Read the news. Listen to the news. No matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, you recognize injustice, oppression. Now, without a final judgment, without God's eternal justice at the last day, there would be no means of addressing this injustice. The fact that there is a final judgment, the fact that righteousness and justice will be applied where it belongs and it will be perfectly meted out according to just and equitable measure, according to God's perfect wisdom and righteousness, this is a good thing. Imagine the hopelessness of living in a world where the wrongs would never be righted and the injustices would never be rectified. God's final judgment at the last day, God's eternal justice is a good thing. It's a good thing. And Romans 3 addresses, again, just just another passage to bolster this point. Romans 3, verse 3, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, LGBT, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. And then it says this, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, and he takes that for granted as a given. And then he says that people are abusing this idea and saying, verse 8, let us do evil that good may come. But the point that I'm making here is that when our unrighteousness demonstrates God's righteousness, that's a good thing. People are drawing the wrong conclusion that that means we should go out and sin so that we can help move along that good thing. And that's, that's to be condemned. But he says that it's a good thing. When our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, that is a good thing. God's justice, God's righteousness will be showcased at the last day and His glory will be exalted therein. Now, does this mean that God takes pleasure in the death of the wicked? Absolutely not. Ezekiel 18, verse 32. God pleads with sinners. He pleads through His ambassadors in 2, Timothy, 2 Corinthians 5. He pleads. He says, I don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but I would rather have you repent and believe. I would rather have you turn from your sin. That would be more consistent with my law. That would be more consistent with my character. That would be more consistent with your chief end that I've designed within you as a human being that you would glorify and enjoy me forever. Don't think that I'm taking pleasure in sin or taking pleasure in misery in and of itself Not at all. God pleads with the wicked to turn and live and to glorify and enjoy God forever, which is their chief end by creation. But He takes pleasure in justice. Psalm 37.10, the Lord loves justice. He takes pleasure in distributing 
the right amount of, of misery and judgment and wrath upon those who deserve it. He does take pleasure in being fair and equitable and bringing judgment and not sweeping it under the rug, not clearing the guilty. He does take pleasure in justice. And if we are conformed to the Lord our God in our character, we need to take pleasure, not in misery for its own sake, but we ought to take pleasure in God's justice. Not to say, well, you know, I'm going to puff up myself as self-righteous. Look at me, I'm righteous. No, that righteousness you have, that salvation you have is a gift from God. I'm not saying you should feel self-righteous toward the wicked. But when you rejoice in the destruction of the wicked according to God's eternal justice, you are aligning your will with God because He willed that to happen. He wants justice to happen because He's a just God. If you are being conformed to the image and likeness of God in Christ, you will rejoice in God's eternal justice. Really, if you're afraid of doing that because you think it's self-righteous, be careful in seeking to not feel more righteous than other people, you're now making yourself more righteous than God Himself. So be careful with that. Be careful with humanistic thinking. All my goodness, God says, includes my just judgments. It includes when He sends out the angels as the reapers at harvest time, Matthew 13, to weed out of His kingdom all the sons of the wicked one and to purge His floor and to purify and gather His church at the last day. We ought to rejoice in the justice of God. I'm not saying we don't at the same time shed tears of grief at the sins of the wicked and at their misery in and of itself, but we must rejoice in God and we must rejoice in His justice because that is, my friends, that is who He is. That's what you've signed up for. If you're a Christian, you've signed up for a God who is just in all His ways. And once again, I could read you passages till we're both blue in the face. Romans 8, where it talks about the creation itself groaning under the burden of sinners on the earth. Psalm 104 says, Consumed from the earth, let sinners then be. God says in your praise of me in Psalm 104, I want you to sing this prayer that the earth would be purged that it would be cleansed of all who are in opposition to God and to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Consumed from the earth, let sinners then be. Revelation 21.8 says that in God's holy heavenly city, that there will be nothing that defiles, no abomination, no one who has loved or practiced a lie. God's eternal justice is the precondition for the blessedness and goodness of heaven. If he didn't have a final judgment and eternal justice to separate the sheep from the goats, heaven would be just as corrupt as the earth. So don't say that you desire to go to heaven and then hold at a distance the very goodness and justice of God that brings that about. So God's eternal justice is good. Secondly, God's providential justice is good. We're told in verse 7 that God visits the iniquity of families. He visits the iniquities of fathers 
that then by way of example and a failure to discipline and instruct and so on and so forth, this bad example that it's passed on to the second generation, the children, the third generation, the grandchildren, the fourth generation, the great-grandchildren. So in a normal generational pattern here, that fourth generation would probably, possibly, had opportunity to view that iniquity in the great-grandparent and in the grandparent and in the parent. And so you, you have this generational judgment of God as sin organically and judicially is passed on from generation to generation and God brings judgment on families. And that's a good thing. Though sinners grow like grass, the wicked multiply, they're doomed to be destroyed. You, Lord, are exalted on high. Psalm 92 Verse 7, again, do we take pleasure in it? In one sense, no, but it's a good thing. If God did not judge wicked families, the earth would be filled even more than it is today with wickedness and injustice. Secondly, He judges nations providentially. When Israel passed through the Red Sea and God drowned Pharaoh and his hosts in the Red Sea, the Israelites did not have a day of fasting and humiliation weeping for the Egyptians. And I don't say that to try to be funny. I'm saying, what did they do? They rejoiced. They rejoiced in the justice of God who destroyed the wicked, unjust, bloodthirsty army that was breathing down their necks to slaughter them and their children. And God defended them. I'm not talking about you're driving down the highway and somebody cuts you off and you start singing an imprecatory psalm, okay? We're talking about injustice. We're talking about bloodthirsty people seeking to destroy us. And maybe if we experienced more of that in our society, we would understand why God put these psalms in the psalm book. But Israel rejoiced at the Red Sea in Exodus 15. I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider He has thrown into the sea. They're rejoicing that people were killed under the justice, the providential justice of God against the nation of Egypt. And Psalm 72, verse 4, even speaking of the kingdom of Christ, as He reigns at God's right hand, He will bring justice to the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. Jesus has a rod of iron. He dashes unjust nations to pieces. He's long-suffering. He gives them time, but He dashes them to pieces. And it doesn't just say that He'll be kind and gentle and and, uh, gather the needy into His arms, but it says He will break in pieces the oppressor. And that's a good thing. We don't like oppression. We like when it's dashed to pieces. And poor, impoverished, oppressed people are set free from sin and from injustice. And that is the agenda of Jesus Christ. We see God's providential judgment in the church as well. You say, really? God brings justice on the church? I thought God was gracious toward the church. Does God really punish the church in any sense? And some people will tell you, no, God doesn't punish the church in any sense. Well, certainly He doesn't bring His infinite eternal wrath against those whom He saved through the blood of Christ. Absolutely, we don't believe that a true Christian will ever taste of God's infinite 
just punishment in hell, nor will they endure punishment in purgatory. But Ezra 9.13 tells us that God has punished His people less than their sins deserved. So there are gracious fatherly chastisements that are called punishments where God punishes His people less than they deserve. So it's not the strict justice of the law in the same sense, but God is being just. I mean, He's either just or unjust, right? Which is it? Of course, He's just. He's not unjust. And it is a punishment, though it's less than our sins deserve. And though it's a fatherly chastisement to bring us into conformity to His will, nevertheless, He does punish His church. He is just and equitable in these fatherly chastisements. Psalm 99, verse 8, we sing this all the time, that God forgave Israel's sins, but judged their works. He took vengeance on their sinful deeds. You see that throughout the books of Moses. We saw it in the psalm meditation tonight. He forgives their sin, but He also brings judgment upon His people. John 15 tells us that the Father is a vine dresser who prunes the vine and cuts off dead branches. Romans 11 says that God, through His severity, though He is kind to His church, there's also severity to judge unbelievers and cut them off of the visible church, off of the olive tree, cutting them off for their unbelief. God brings providential justice upon His church. Ephesus, he threatened to remove the candlestick. Laodicea, he threatened to vomit them out of his mouth. Uh, I think another one of the churches, he said, I'm going to come quickly and judge you with the sword of my mouth. There is providential justice, even in a fatherly sense, that God brings upon his church and even upon individuals. Look at Ananias and Sapphira. They lied to the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 5, and they were struck dead. They were struck dead. Just like the people who misused the Lord's Supper in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 11, they were struck dead. Just like Jezebel and her children in Jesus' letter to the seven churches, He threatens her with death. God brings judgment upon His church and judgment upon individuals. But notice in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, it was a good thing when God brought judgment upon these members of His church. It was a good thing. In Acts chapter 5, we're told in verse 11, so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet, Now, despite the fact they did all these miracles, normally you'd have tons of people stepping right up to become members. Wow, I saw a miracle. I believe in Jesus. But because of the fear of God from the judgment upon Ananias and Sapphira, we're told, yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. When judgment starts at the house of God, and God chastens and judges His people, And there is a sense of the fear of God. That is a good thing. When God prunes His tree, when God cuts away the dead branches, it is a good thing. Because we're told, the very next verse, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women. So they they had the fear of God. They didn't take it lightly. They weren't flippant. They weren't shallow. But eventually, they professed their faith in sincerity. 
So God's providential justice on families, on nations, and even in the midst of His church, even in the midst of individuals in the church, is a good thing. It's good. It's part of all His goodness. And in addition, just in closing, this is kind of where we're headed, and I just have a few minutes, but God's ordinances of justice are good. God manifests His justice not just in His providence, but He has set up ordinances and institutions of justice in this world, in the family, the state, and the church. And Jesus calls that justice a weightier matter of the law. Matthew 23.23, justice is a weightier matter of the law. We need to take this seriously, my friends, because in the same way that we keep God's attribute of justice at arm's length and don't recognize its goodness, it's very much the case that we can begin to not view God's ordinances of justice as a good thing. But the Lord says, here's what I require of you, oh man. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. What is good? What does the Lord require of you? Micah 6.8 What is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? My friends, these ordinances of justice are good in the family. We heard it in the psalm meditation. Family discipline, parental discipline is a good thing. David didn't practice this on Adonijah, 1 Kings 1.6. And Adonijah was not rebuked for his sin. He was not lovingly instructed. His father did not invest in him and disciple him and discipline and train him. And because he wasn't trained, his life was a train wreck. And he died. He was killed. He tried to take the throne from Solomon. Eventually he was put to death and executed. Proverbs 13, verse 24 tells us that family justice, family justice is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. In fact, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Promptly. Justice is also good in the state. I'm racing to my conclusion. It's good in the state. We're told in Romans 13, Paul says that God has instituted the power of the sword among the powers that be for the good of society, to encourage the good, to punish the evil. It is for our good that God has established the power of the sword and the power of the state to punish what is evil and to promote what is good. Now, I'm going to cut out what I was going to say about that because I just don't have time. But suffice to say, our society and most nations today do not employ the power of the sword. Certainly not as God has ordained it. Uh, Certainly not in the way that 1 Timothy 2 says would produce a reverent and quiet and godly and peaceable society. Uh, They don't follow the blueprint that God lays out in the Old Testament in the law of Moses and that's fleshed out the general principles of equity and justice throughout Genesis to Revelation. They don't do that. Instead of having retributive justice, the punishment fits the crime. Instead of punishing the human traffickers we talked about this morning with death, which is what they deserve, Hebrews 2.2 says the Old Testament death penalty all of the sanctions, all of the punishments were just. 
They don't do that. Instead, they have numerous oppressive and tyrannical regulations trying to preempt these kinds of things by regulating everybody rather than throwing the book at the offender who caused the harm, rather than punishing what is evil morally. They try to prevent harm and they try to regulate everything to death and rehabilitate prisoners and give them an MIT master's degree rather than punishing with the power of the sword. And uh, you can see people don't pay attention to speeding tickets. Uh, Your phone tells you where the police are half the time. We have all these preventative safety regulations. I think if we had the death penalty for vehicular homicide, probably people would pay a lot more attention if they began to see public executions against people who commit biblical crimes worthy of the death penalty. That would actually create a society where people would be concerned about the law, not so concerned in our society of bureaucratic regulations. Now, I know if that was the short version, but anyway, um, finally, in the church, in the church, God's justice is manifested in church discipline. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 6 The punishment was inflicted by the majority. Speaking of church discipline. The punishment which was inflicted by the majority. Is church discipline a punishment? You better believe it. Otherwise, what's Paul talking about there? Yes, it's a punishment. Is it designed to bring about repentance and restoration? Absolutely. But is it a punishment? Read the verse. It's a punishment. Should church discipline be just? Should there be justice? Is it... Is justice the wrong concept? No, you're either just or you're unjust. So I'd say it should be just if I had to give my opinion, but obviously it should be just. And it is a punishment. And we're told in 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6 that in Corinth they weren't bringing just church discipline on people that were committing scandalous sins. And Paul in chapter 6 says, look, what is up with you guys? Don't you know the saints are going to judge the world? You're going to participate in the eternal proclamation of God's judgment on the last day against the demons, against unrepentant sinners. You are going to join in the proclamation and declaration of that judgment. Don't you know that we will judge angels? Don't you know that we will participate in the judgment on the last day? And we can't even handle reading a statement from the pulpit and denying people access to the Lord's table, Paul is livid with the Corinthians. We as a church need to wake up and realize that justice is good in the family. It is good in the state. It is good in the church. It's not for destruction, it's for edification. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 10. But my friends... It is a good thing. Why do we do church discipline? Our our blue book, our, our book of discipline, gives a number of reasons primarily to reclaim a sinning member. So right there. But it's not exclusively to reclaim the sinning member. Think about all the other reasons. To deter others from similar offenses. To maintain the honor of Christ. The purity and peace of the church. To maintain the truth of the gospel and to avoid God's wrath on the church. So even if the discipline seems 
highly distasteful to the person who's being disciplined and you say, this is just going to offend them. This is just going to drive them away. My friends, church discipline is not codependent. It's, it's not something that depends upon human opinion. It's not exclusively to reclaim the person. It is for a host of other important reasons, not the least of which is the glory of Jesus Christ who rules and reigns His church in justice. Who is a just king. Just and having salvation. And my friends, God is just. And His justice is a subset of His goodness. It is good. And if we were to add another reason for church discipline, we could say this, to manifest our Christ-like conformity to the character of God. When we do not value church discipline, we are not loving God. When we try to avoid church discipline and justice in the church, when we try to avoid it, when we try to keep it at arm's length, we are keeping God at arm's length, we're keeping Jesus Christ at arm's length. This is crucial in the life of the church that we come to grips with the glory and the name and the goodness of God. One aspect of which is His justice. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give thanks for Your willingness to reveal Yourself. You have no obligation to reveal Yourself to us, certainly in our sinful condition. And we have neglected to value Your revelation time and time again, yet You in Your long-suffering continue to speak Your truth and reveal Your character. Help us to love and embrace all Your goodness, even Your justice. Help us to humble ourselves and realize what goodness it would be for us to be damned. And yet at the same time, all the more to value Your mercy and Your grace to Your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.